Hey everybody, this is Cole Fakes and Terry Fakes here for the So We Speak podcast. And every couple of months we do what's one of my favorite episodes. I hope it's one of everybody's favorite episodes, but we're just going to talk about some books we've been reading, uh, some ways that we look at books as far as leadership, as far as the Christian life is concerned, um, and, and maybe most importantly, just the way that the life of the mind is concerned. And so I wanted to kick it off before we get to any particular books or recommendations for reading. I just wanted to ask you, when did you really become a reader? Uh, you are a voracious reader. Um, when did you realize that about yourself or when did you start to see significance in the way that uh, you were reading for your leadership? Uh, great question. I started reading pretty young. I mean, I, I always liked books when I was really young. I liked science fiction and fantasy and stories and uh, it was a way to enliven uh, the world, make worlds come alive in your mind. And I think that's really good for mental development for kids. That they have them read stories, telling them stories. Then later I began to read to learn the great ideas. I know that you read a lot of the great books, and maybe you'll talk about that in a second. I didn't have such a, a prescribed course of reading, but I did end up reading a lot of the great thinkers and some of the great ideas, some of the great fiction you know, of, of the mm -hmm. world. And then later in my career, I realized that you read on t I read in two tracks. One was reading for work. And that was the ability to assimilate information. I tended to read a lot, uh, a lot of information. And then I saw reading outside work as more uh, enriching. It's almost like reading for work, I went really deep. And mm -hmm. it gave me a lot of focus and a lot of data and concentration. And then reading outside, whether it was history or archaeology or science or whatever, broadened my mind. And so it's just been my practice throughout my life. And I know it's one that you've taken up. And I'm not sure you don't read more books than I do at this point. So how about you? What, uh, what's your reading life like? You know, I probably started later. I, I don't think, I think I probably could read before this, but I don't think I read books for pleasure until I was in college. Hmm. Um, but I don't actually remember reading uh, for the love of it before then. You read for school or don't read for school. That was kind of my chosen <laughs> path. And then obviously you guys encouraged us to read formative things as kids and read a lot for that. But it wasn't until I was in college, and the funny thing was, it was actually during my pledge semester hmm. that I started to read, partly because I didn't really I didn't really have anything else to do. So I was working and had joined Beta. I was doing study hours early in the morning, and uh, I used to always tell our guys when I was the scholarship chair, if you just do your study hours, you shouldn't have very much homework. Right. And so I would have to do my study hours before my first class, which was at either 8.30 or 9.30. So I'd be in there by myself because nobody wants to do their study hours that early. <laughs> and I would just pull a chair up to the front window and look out on the porch and across the lawn. And uh, I just started getting books that were assigned and then other books and Christian books and just reading for almost two hours every day Wow! and grew to really love reading. And that was a big turning point for me uh, because before that, I, I didn't think reading was really uh, very important. So I think one of the, one of the things I was mistaken about was I thought reading was basically about information, like getting information from books, which is one of the key things of reading. But 
definitely not the most important thing about reading. Right. And I think about, you know, every leadership book you read talks about how reading is an essential form of leadership. Well, it's not a, an essential form of leadership because of information acquisition. Right. Although that's an important thing. But there's yeah. so many other pieces to it. I think one of the most important things is the way that it trains your mind to engage material, right. to follow arguments or historical narratives or keep track of characters. There's a sharpening that takes place when you read. There's an activity that takes place when you read that I think strengthens your mind in everything else that you're doing. Um, what, what's been your biggest takeaway or your biggest reason to keep reading outside of the fact that it's just enjoyable and kind of part of who you are? Well, I, I do. This is just part of the way I'm wired is I have an insatiable desire to understand everything. I don't necessarily need to know everything, nor can anybody mm-hmm. possibly know everything. And I don't think I know a great deal, actually, but I have a desire to understand a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Also, at my stage of life, when you get into your 50s and 60s, I think it's really important to keep stretching your mind. I think it's good for your mental health, so to speak, is to keep stretching your mind. I find myself tempted to go down rabbit holes to get too much into politics or too much into mm-hmm. current events. And I, I do find that your mind is only enriched to the extent that the ideas and the writing the level to which you're reading. So I like to read great books by good writers. I like to read powerful ideas. I'll give you an example of that, Cole, in theology. Uh, N.T. Wright is someone whose theology is, you know, I can take or leave some of that. But I'll tell you what I like about N.T. Wright and why I read a lot of what he writes. His ideas are always powerful and sweeping. And his writing, D.A. Carson once said about N.T. Wright that it's impossible for N.T. Wright to write a boring sentence. And I think that's true. He's really a good writer. He's engaging. And so I think he makes me better in both Mm -hmm. thinking and reading. And so that's what also draws me to history and some of the great books is elevating my Mm -hmm. mind by reading good things. Yeah, I think something that you and I have both adopted in the past few years that is different than the way I started out reading was the discipline and the interest to begin reading multiple books on the same topic. Right. And that's how you really begin to engage the depth of idea and synthesis and and analysis that you can get out of reading because you're constructing for yourself a set of dialogue partners. And Mm -hmm. so everybody's, everybody in their mind can construct a few dialogue partners and you can argue with yourself, but what you really want to do is tease out your ability to think and to hypothesize and to bring different perspectives to bear. And reading is a great way to do that. I always think about, I think it's C.S. Lewis's essay called On Reading Old Books or something Mm -hmm. similar to that, where he says, reading old books is valuable because it gives you the opportunity to sit down across the table and engage directly with the greatest minds of history. That's true. So you get to sit down across from whoever you're reading. You know, you can sit sit down with Plato or Homer. You could sit down with people that are in government today or the best business leaders today. And it's actually your best opportunity, short of figuring out a way to sit down for lunch with them, to engage them on a one-on-one basis is through what they have actually read. And if you assemble four or five different people at the top of their field or their area mm-hmm. and read through their different books and think through their different arguments, you're engaging in a conversation right. with some extremely talented and, and brilliant people. That, to me, is the big value of reading a stack on a certain topic as opposed to 
just tons of disparate things about um, you know all kinds of different topics. So that's one way to read, and one way I think both of us try to engage, um, but not the only way, obviously. So go ahead and kick us off with some of the stuff that you've been reading lately. Well, uh, it's been a good time for reading for me. Let me start first with I've been interested in Stoicism recently. Stoicism is a ancient Greek, but probably better known from the Romans, philosophy. It is, uh, you'll find Paul, I think in some ways, interacts with Stoicism because it was a very common way of looking at life in his time. And so I've just become reinterested and I've reread several things. Uh, and I do exactly what you said. I've read four or five books on this same topic. But I just want to highlight one. Probably one of the most famous Stoics in history is the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Mm -hmm. Aurelius, probably best known from the movie Gladiator. He's the Mm -hmm. uh, old emperor who is killed by Commodus, his son. That's not historical, but they are historical. And he was a wise emperor, kind of a philosopher king. And he subscribed to the philosophy or the way of looking at life called Stoicism. And he wrote down his notes on life, and they're called the Meditations. So if you go to your bookstore, you can find the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Now, he didn't intend to publish the Meditations. They were simply little essays on how he looked at life and lessons he had learned from life. And I would commend it to anyone who uh, is interested in Stoicism. And there's been a, a relatively recent new translation from the Latin that I really like. And so the title of the book is The Emperor's Handbook. The Emperor's Hmm. Handbook. And uh, it's basically the meditations of Marcus Aurelius translated. And we'll we'll put a link to these these books or the titles for you. But it's just a great translation, probably the best I've read. Uh, Great translation. And I think as you read it, you're going to find that it's very contemporary. There are an awful lot of Stoics running around. They just don't know that's what they believe. Yeah, that it's an ancient philosophy. So Marcus Aurelius kicked me off in the philosophical realm, but then I'm always reading some kind of biography. And mm-hmm. I think you've read this series called On the Christian Life. It oh, yeah. is a series of biographies of basically Christian saints, in, you know, saints of the Christian life. This one is called Wesley on the Christian Life, and it's by mm-hmm. Fred Sanders, and it's a biography of John Wesley, And I've read several of those, of course. But I really like this entire series. And they do a really Mm -hmm. good job in here of surveying his theology as well as his life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an incredible series. And I think they're up to maybe 20-some-odd volumes of of biography. I think my favorite in the series have been uh, B.B. Warfield and Charles Spurgeon, both Mm. excellent. But they've got Calvin, which is a good one. Augustine is good. Um, they're starting to do more modern people. I think there's a J.I. Packer out now. Maybe John Stott is is available. Uh, but that's a great series. It is. I, I like reading some of the lives of, I've read Spurgeon, Calvin. I believe Luther, too, is one of the last ones I read. Wesley. But I love the idea that they're expanding it into more contemporary people. I think reading biographies and seeing the strengths and weaknesses and learning from those who came before us is, is really a great idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, Third, I've also been reading a cluster of books around the idea of depression. 
And hmm. it's something I'm interested in, not uh, obviously my degrees aren't in psychology and I'm not a psychologist, but I'm very interested in depression because I encounter it quite a bit in my pastoral work. And there are several approaches to treating depression, one of which is called cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to talk about a book on that, although maybe I will talk about that in some future one. That's very interesting. But there's also the field of neuroscience. And so Mm -hmm. I've read a book recently that I like a lot, and I would commend to our listeners, or not necessarily to them personally, but anyone they know who, who would benefit from this. But it's called The Upward Spiral. And it's by Alex Korb, K-O-R-B, a Ph.D. in psychology. The upward spiral is a play on the, the phrase a downward spiral. And depression is basically a downward spiral. Your moods affect your brain chemistry, which then affects your mood, etc. This is a book about using neuroscience to reverse the course of depression. Now, first, what it's not, it's not a cure for depression. It's not necessarily a cure for seeing a counselor or seeing your uh medical practitioner, but what it really does well is it explains how your brain chemistry affects certain things about your mood, and more importantly, how some of the things that you can do, believe it or not, affect your brain chemistry. And so it's some of the behavioral things or attitudinal things, some very simple things you can do that have a uh, a cause a response in your brain chemistry. So it's not a cure for depression, but it's a great way to understand what's going on with people who are depressed. And it's a great way to understand some things you can do to basically start an upward spiral instead of a downward Mm -hmm. spiral. I found it to be very, very well done. Yeah, that's really interesting. It could be a great resource um, just insofar as it helps people to either stop the downward spiral, again, not a replacement for going to talk to somebody when you need to, but to gain awareness, to build better practices. I remember listening to a lecture from Jordan Peterson a couple of, probably about a year ago, and one of the things he's saying is, in my first meeting with somebody who's depressed, there's a lot of things that you can do that might be really helpful just on the front end, like changing your diet, changing your exercise regimen, accomplishing small goals, and uh, that that may not be the solution by any means, but the more you know about how that actually takes place in your body, the chemistry parts, uh, mood parts, obviously the ways that uh, we respond to things that are either tragic or surprising or disappointing, um, I think the more we know on that, the better we will be, and the better, especially if you're if you're looking at pastoral ministry, the depression rates are going up at right. unprecedented rates. And so the more you know about that, um, the better equipped you are to get people the help that they need. Yeah, I have been surprised at uh, what the science shows, and, uh, and this is very scientifically based, what the science shows about some of the things you mentioned, for example, aren't just good habits. What you talked about actually affects the serotonin and dopamine levels and other neurochemicals uh, in your brain, that there really is a connection between the chemicals and attitudes and behaviors. I think that was eye-opening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, another one I'm reading around, reading a, an entire group of books about, but I keep coming back to Mark Yarhouse. I'm reading one of his later books called Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Mm-hmm. And this book is basically about navigating transgender issues in our culture. He's written about homosexuality. He's written broadly on this. And he is a Ph.D. in psychology. He's a clinical psychologist. 
He is a Christian. He is an Orthodox Christian when it comes to Mm -hmm. these issues. So his books have less to do with quoting the Bible and more to do with the science of gender dysphoria, understanding it. One of the things Mm -hmm. I like about Mark Yarhouse in general, but in this book, is he helps give you ways of looking at it uh, that I think are very helpful in approaching people. For example, he holds to the biblical truth of the issue, but he talks about the relational aspects. He talks about historical aspects, some of the uh, other aspects of experiencing transgender phenomenon. So in short, I found this book to be really helpful in a very practical way. It's also filled with scientific studies and his work from clinical psychology. So he carries some authority with me because he's not talking ideologically. He's talking about applying a biblical ideology to the set of facts that exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great resource. And then finally for me, this one was just on a whim, but I read a book that I heard about recently by Rebecca McLaughlin. I had not heard of her, and she wrote a book called Confronting Christianity called Hmm. 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. She has an interesting story in that she is same-sex attracted individual, and she tells some of her story and some of her friends' stories. She is also a Christian. She is an Orthodox Christian on this issue again, one who holds to uh, the, the Bible's sexual morality. But she talks a little bit about sexual morality, but actually the book is answering 12 questions like, how could a loving God send people to hell? Uh, Can you take the Bible literally? Doesn't religion hinder morality, Uh, etc.? So it's basically a book on apologetics, but her perspective is fresh and her scholarship is good. And so this is one that uh, it's not very big, but if you haven't really read a book that's ans- you know, uh, asking these questions and answering them, I found that Rebecca McLaughlin's work was, was good. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a fascinating book. Um, I had not heard of that one, but might have to check that one out. I've been I, I've dove into a couple of political books recently that are both really good. Um, the first one, Justice on Trial by Hemingway and Servino. So this is the book that they began to release on the one year anniversary of the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. And it is amazing how much information we know now about what transpired during those hearings and how disparate the interpretations of those facts are and how little uh, certain people in the media or the 2020 presidential candidates are the worst about this how much of what actually went on they either do not know or are intentionally obscuring Mm -hmm. about that confirmation process. So that was eye-opening to me. I had followed all the stuff in the New York Times about the other book, The Education of Brett Kavanaugh, and the big piece that came out about that and and the way that the information was distorted. So I, I wanted to read the other side of it and see what... Uh, Hemingway and Servino had to say. It was really well written, really informative, um, pretty eye-opening how everything went down and and gives you a lot of confidence moving forward in Kavanaugh. Well, one thing I'd add to that is I found that book to be very well researched and footnoted. Unlike Mm -hmm. its counterpart written by the reporters from the New York Times, which I'm sure has some uh, some accuracy to it. I'm not saying it's not accurate. I'm just saying if you want to know a very well-researched book, 
by Hemingway. She just footnotes everything. You get the actual transcripts. This book is a piece of journalism, not a piece of opinion writing. Right. Yeah, I appreciated that about it. The second one is called Ball of Collusion. It's a little bit older. It's about a year old. It's by Andy McCarthy, who writes at National Review. And this one is different. It's a book about the end of the Obama administration and the beginning of the uh, Russia investigation and the Mueller investigation. Huh. So the point that he's making is uh, there's a lot of research, obviously, that went into the way that the Trump administration and the Trump campaign interfaced with Russia. And, of course, Mueller put out his investigation. At this point, people have read that, talked about it. But he said there's actually not been hardly anything talked about about how the investigation began in the first place. Hmm. So what he's doing is he's covering the last few months of the Obama administration, the things that Obama and the Department of Justice did to set up the investigation for when Trump got there. Uh, He's obviously writing from a conservative perspective, but the book does read, the book is persuasive in the sense that he thinks that the Obama administration overstepped their bounds in several ways. But the thing that I took away from it is I didn't know any of what he was including in the book. It's not just about the the Clinton emails. It's a lot more about the steps that you can take within the branches of government, no matter what political party you're a part of, Mm -hmm. uh, to either set your successor up for success or for failure. And uh, in some ways, Trump was set up for failure. Now, of course, people that read this book that don't like Trump are going to say that he actually set himself up for failure, and that's also a debatable point. But right. he started a few a few steps behind where somebody like Obama started, and this was a real eye-opener into some of the political and bureaucratic processes that you can engage in um, in an outgoing administration. So that one was really interesting. Uh, the next one is a book that you gave me that I've really enjoyed just as a fun book to read called In Hoffa's Shadow. Mm, very and interesting. And it's by uh, Goldsmith. It, It's a great book in its own right, but it's an especially good book given the Scorsese movie The Irishman that's going to come out at the end of next month um, with De Niro, Al Pacino is in it, Joe Pesci is in it. Uh, I'm hoping that it's one of the better mob movies since Goodfellas Uh or The Godfather, but that's a pretty high bar. But if you're into that, if, if, if you're into that kind of thing, In Hoffa's Shadow is a great book. And it's a great book beyond just the stories it tells about Jimmy Hoffa. It's a story of reconciliation between the author and his stepfather. And that's a that's a part of the book that I thought was really, really good and would have made it a good book no matter what he was talking about. Right. But it just so happens that they're talking about the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, which is even better. So I know you've read that one too, but that, that was one I really enjoyed. The, uh, the thing about that, I'd add just maybe one thing is the author is uh, a lawyer, and he's worked in the Justice Department, and uh, I believe he teaches at Harvard and went to Yale. But he mm-hmm. is the stepson of uh, Chucky uh, O'Neill. O'Brien. Or, yeah, O'Brien. I'm sorry. I said O'Neill. O'Brien. Chucky O'Brien, who was really uh, kind of an understudy of Hoffa and kind of Hoffa's driver and right-hand man. And so it's really interesting having this guy who's worked in the Justice Department, his stepfather, whom he loves and who treated him very Mm -hmm. well, was Jimmy Hoffa's right-hand man. Of course, Jimmy Hoffa being with the mob. The twists and turns in this are just amazing. 
Yeah, it's one of those stories you couldn't you couldn't make up. No screenwriter, no author could make up as good a story as the one that that book tells. Uh-huh. Uh, that one's been a, a really enjoyable book. Uh, I would be remiss if we didn't mention a Churchill book on this uh, podcast just because <laughs> we're always reading Churchill. Uh, the interesting thing is if you want to read a stack of books about something, usually there's a pretty confined inner circle of books to read. One of the fun things about Churchill is the inner circle is is several hundred books right. around. Right. So you can actually read about him forever if you want to, which we're, we're endeavoring to do. <laughs> but there's a book called Mr. Churchill's Profession by Peter Clark. And the unique thing about this book is it looks at Churchill's from the standpoint of he was a professional writer. He was a journalist. He was an author. He was a historian. That's what he did to make a living. In fact, uh, during the 20s and 30s, his political salary that he got for being a member of parliament only made up about 2% of his income. Yeah. And, uh, of course, they were not paid uh, a salary that, that anybody expected to be there their uh, right. livelihood. Uh-huh. But still, it was such a small part of the income that he was earning. The vast majority of it, some 70% of it, was directly through writing books and articles and book advances. And then obviously there were speaking tours and things like that as well. But this book is interesting because it looks at him just through that prism. There's not much biographical in there other than what pertains to his life as a journalist and as an author. You know, that's interesting. So that's a little different take. It is a different take, and it's probably a very accurate take. You know, if you think about it, based on what you just said, his income from politics would not have even covered his bar bill. I mean, it would not have paid (laughs) for the champagne that he drank, you know, every day. But I'm also reading uh, the abridged version. So it's a very thick one volume that he did of his memoirs of World War II. And I'm reading Mm -hmm. it not because I want to know more about what happened, although he gives you great behind-the-scenes insights. I just love his writing style. He is a very high-quality writer. And I'm just mm-hmm. enjoying the sentences and the way he constructs his paragraphs, and I'm, I'm really hoping to absorb some of that knowledge. So that's a very interesting perspective. We, don't, we often think of him as a politician, but that's actually not what he's best known for in the literary world. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Uh, the last book I want to mention is a book I'm reading right now. I'm, gonna, I'm reviewing it for Covenant Seminary's journal called Presbyterian, uh, Paul as Pastor by Scott McKnight. And I'm, I'm just a little way into this one, but I'd already recommend it. This is, a book, this is a book that falls into that category of books I've wanted to read that I hadn't found anybody write that had, had written it. Uh-huh. So this book is focusing on Paul, not just as a theologian, not just as a church planner or missionary, but as a pastor. What was he actually trying to do in the churches that he was setting up? And if you think about it, you know, there are there are guys today that have planted a couple of churches. There's obviously a big movement to, to, to plant satellites and networks of churches. But I don't know that there's anybody who's even remotely close to Paul in setting up autonomous churches, healthy autonomous churches. And as you watch what he's doing in the New Testament, he's going from place to place to place. He'll circle back and revisit. But he is planting standalone churches in areas that have never heard the gospel before. And so it's an interesting dynamic to say, what was it about Paul's vision and his mission where he saw himself as planting these churches that actually changed culture? Hmm. They 
We're about the transformation of the people. He's installing elders to teach and to lead these churches who have only been Christians for a few years. Um, and so McKnight really dives into that and, and, and looks at both his aim, his method, the an evaluation of the work that he did in certain places. And so I'm, I'm excited to get further into that one, but that's one I would recommend as well. Um, Scott McKnight's a great writer. Mm-hmm. Um, he has the academic chops to be a premier Pauline scholar, but he spends most of his time writing on a more popular level, and that's a that's a killer right. combination. Then the last thing I wanted to mention is the stack that I'm working through now is a history stack in the history of the end of the Roman Empire and the beginning of, of Europe. And uh, I just wanted to talk about that from, from a motivation standpoint. When I was a couple of years out of college, I was in a conversation with some people and realized that I knew next to nothing about American history. Hmm. And I don't, if, if there's anybody who was a teacher of mine listening to this, it really was not their fault. It was my fault. <laughs> I didn't read. I didn't remember. I didn't study. I know I was in some history classes at some point, but I had no idea what had happened in the history of the U.S. Um, to an embarrassing level. So what I did was I decided I was going to build a curriculum of reading that would be a self-education, like an independent study program to understand and to learn about the history of the United States. And because I didn't have a ton of time, I was in seminary at this point and just wanted the high points, I went through and researched, okay, who are the guys that have won Pulitzer Prizes or Nobel Prizes Uh or the, the best and most popular but but most well-written sources uh, f- to learn about American history. And so I put a list together uh, starting from before the revolution up through, and I made it about through the end of World War II, and then I lost interest after that with, with that because I got sidetracked by so many things mm-hmm. that I discovered as I was reading. Yeah. So I started out, and I, I read some things on the Constitution and the uh, Founding Fathers. That's where I discovered David McCullough, his book, 1776, uh-huh. John Adams. Obviously, he's written a lot of great biographies and short biographies, and I, I'll, I'll read anything that he's written. John Meacham is somebody that I discovered yep. on that, um, and several others. And so by the time I get through that, I realize I have all these interests in good history. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem is you grow up thinking history is a list of facts, just memorizing dates or when things happened or who was involved. And that's certainly a requisite part of history. But that is just to get you to what history really is, which uh-huh. is an analysis of the human condition, of the big movements and ideas of history, the way that societies rise and fall, the explanation of why great men and terrible men and, and great women and terrible women have done the things that they've done. Uh, when you read history, you actually are studying yourself other people in the world all simultaneously. And a good history book or a good biography is going to do all those things for you. Teach you from the past, show a mirror up to your present moment uh, about the way that things really function, and hopefully instruct you in the future about what to do and not to do. The one I'm on right now, I, I got interested in towards the decline and fall of the Roman Empire written by Gibbon. Mm-hmm. So the Western Empire falls almost a thousand years before the Eastern Empire. And I wanted to figure out what happened between that point and what we know of as modern Europe. Uh How did that transpire? Of course, everybody has in the back of their mind that there were dark ages, 
basically from the biblical times until relatively recently. That's <laughs> maybe true, maybe not true, uh-huh. uh, in the sense that there were a lot of things that were happening in the Dark Ages. But the thing that's most interesting about this period is the role that institutional religion played in the development of modern Europe. Right. So Christianity becomes the permissible and then the official religion of the Roman Empire shortly before it falls. Uh, you have somebody like Augustine watching the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And then you have all of society step back a couple hundred years in terms of technology and organization and vision and academic institutions through what we know as the Dark Ages into the medieval world, which we think about um, as knights and Camelot, all of that uh-huh. dominated by Christianity. And then a movement from that into the Enlightenment. Um, we have Renaissance, all of that going on into modern Europe. And I started with the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, but then I branched out into things like um, Mary Beard's work. Mm-hmm. So her book, SBQR, is, is really good. Um, the History of England by Lord Macaulay was Churchill's favorite source uh-huh. on uh, the history of England specifically, but of England and Europe broadly. If I were to recommend one book from this, I would recommend The Inheritance of Rome by Chris Wickham. Hmm. It's been mm-hmm. a pretty fantastic book. It it traces a path of almost a thousand years from 400-ish yeah. to 1300 and talks about the growing um, tribes in the beginning, then the nation states. And the interesting thing about about his book is it combines the eastern part of the empire, which would be the caliphate, uh-huh. which a lot of Western or, or European history readings don't include. But the role of Islam in the development of Europe is fascinating. Right. And the way that the Crusades mapped on top of that. Um, for Next, I'm going to read a book called Millennium by Tom Holland. And he has a new book out called Dominion about the role of religion. But this one is about the millennium of the Dark Ages or the Medieval Ages and uh, hoping to just make my way up towards the present in much the same way as I did in the American History self-study course. So I've got several still to go, and I'll check back in on a future podcast, but that's that's the area I'm fixated on right now. What's next for you? What's in your stack? Oh, I'm kind of moving from, you know, area to area, and I'm, I'm working through several books, like I mentioned, uh, in, in certain areas right now, and then something will hit me. You know, I'm really thinking a lot about biblical theology lately, and I'm really thinking about a more accessible way of understanding some of the great scope of the Bible. Uh, so I, I really would like to bring in a lot of disparate ideas into into that. I will probably continue my reading around the cultural and the, the uh, biblical and the pastoral aspects of the LGBTQ movement. I just think that's mm-hmm. very timely for us. And then now I'm really interested in what you were talking about. You kind of turned mm-hmm. me on to the, by the way, I don't like Gibbon's rise and fall of the Roman uh-huh. Empire. I, I think he was horribly biased. You talked to me about a series that you may want to mention. Was it Penguin that published yeah, so the some series? Of these books are from the Penguin History of Europe. And uh, they, they've laid out a great path. If you just wanted to read straight through from, the, they actually start in the end of the Greek Empire, mm-hmm. beginning of Rome, history of Rome, all the way up through 
the present. And it's in about nine volumes. They're not too long. They're, they're done by expert scholars, Cambridge and Oxford. Um, David Canadine is the editor. Mm-hmm. And then you have Princeton scholars that are doing s- several of the volumes as well. That's a great series. It's not technical history, so right. it's, it's written at a semi-popular level, I feel like. And very inter- very interesting, but also very intriguing and entertaining. They uh-huh. do a lot of a lot to capture what was going on. That series is a great one to read if you're interested in that. I'm also interested. You mentioned uh, Holland, the uh, mm-hmm. the historian. He's getting a lot of press recently about his newest book. But he sounds like a let me just say he sounds like a historian with a lot of idiosyncrasies. I will be very interested in your take on that book, uh, The Millennium. Yeah. Well, he's done some work as a Tolkien scholar as well, huh. so he's known in several different areas. Uh, but I'm I'm excited to dive into that one. Yeah, that one sounds great. Well, you know, just in general about history and why do we read so much history? Because it's history, you know. Why not mm-hmm. more popular events? Yeah, for example, I've uh, the first chapter in the uh, Churchill's memoirs of the Second World War. He doesn't start at the Second World War. He starts with the Treaty of Versailles at the end of World War I. And it has been eye-opening to me, uh, not so much that I didn't understand this fact, that the Treaty of Versailles contained within it the seeds of World War II. But how Mm. many people at the time realized that? And it occurred to me Mm -hmm. that there's a lot of wisdom in learning how to go about doing things. And I immediately, this is going to sound like a disconnect, but I immediately skipped to the church and what we do thinking through building a congregation, building the church. And it's almost in the sense that if we are wise enough to learn from those who went before us, I think it adds wisdom to how we look toward the future. I think if, mm-hmm. if we make very short-term decisions, we're going to end up replaying the Treaty of Versailles, or we're going to end up replaying these historical failures. So I think Mm -hmm. history is important, not just to know what happened in the past, but it's more applicable to what's going on today than we realize. Yeah, I would say that hardly anything that we're experiencing right now is either as simple or as recent as we think it is. Good. And if if Proverbs is right, that in the abundance of, of counselors, there's wisdom we would do well to look back and see what some of the greatest minds in history observed about their own time, knowing that there are similarities in what we're going through right now, knowing that we can uncover the roots, the, the deeper movements, the forces that are at work, and the trajectories that are being run down. That we're, we're in a world that is much more connected and much more ancient than we typically think about, and history awakens you to that, to that reality. Yeah, you know, if, if I had to, if I had one wish about American politicians, and I realize one would not cover all of the things we'd like to fix, it would be to see more yeah. politicians with a background like Ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska. Mm-hmm. I, you know, he has more of a classical historical background, and I, I something tells me that if we had more historians in politics, we might have more wisdom in politics. I totally agree. One of the things I love in the in the New York Times book section. There's a column they do by the book each week. They interview an author about what's on their nightstand and what they're reading and what's been formative for them. And and they always ask in there, what's one book that you would have the president of the United States read? 
And they've, they've done this for as long as they've done it. It's not just a Trump thing. Although the answers have gotten a little bit more interesting since Trump has taken I'll office. Uh, you know, Obama was such a vocal reader yes. and still puts out books that he reads. He, he's big into fiction and uh, loves memoir, sociolo- sociological books and things. Uh, Trump, not as much. <laughs> but the answers are always interesting. And I, I always love to read people's responses to that question because it tells you about what they value. But it also tells you about what they think about the modern political system. Right. And I think that we would be much wiser as a country if our politicians were reading history, the great ideas, the great books, um, even the Federalist Papers right. and some of the founding documents of our country. We take for granted that everybody knows that, but the, but that apparently is not the yeah, case. not true. So, well, it's always good to get to catch up on what we're reading and get to look ahead a little bit. I think probably we're, we're going to check in around Christmas. Uh, maybe we'll compare the book list that we have and uh, things that we're looking forward to reading in the new year. You know, I would also say, if those of you listening would like to email us with some of your best reads... Believe me, we are always looking for great reads, and we'd love to share that with you through the mechanism of e- uh, email. And so if you want to send that to info at SoWeSpeak.com, we'd, we'd love to hear what you're reading. But Cole, I think we're all looking forward to, so you might start working on this, Cole's Best Reads of 2019. I look forward to that yes. list every year. Yes, I'll be getting ready and uh, publishing that list at the end of the year. I won't leave people hanging until February like I did this year. (laughs) Uh, Best books of 2019 coming at you in December. Uh, Next week and and probably the week after, we're getting back into biblical books. And uh, we'll see after that. So we'll see you guys next week on the So We Speak podcast. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.